and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am still in Belgrade, Serbia. Uh, I will be leaving, actually, in a, bit, a day or two, and hoping that I will be able to get back to Western Europe. As I'm sure many of you know, the coronavirus situation in Europe is really bad right now, and it's actually kind of a frightening time to be traveling. Um, I am vaccinated, but the last dose of my my second dose of the vaccine was over six months ago. So I'm trying to figure out whether or not I can get a booster and whether I need one. And today I am going to continue reading the New Woman essay that I started reading uh, two episodes ago and pick up where we left off, which is about Kolontai describing the representation of the quote-unquote new woman, the single women, in literature. And the interesting thing, again, about this essay, as I've said before, is that she's sort of tacking back and forth between the representation of women in literature and the representation of women in, I mean, and and the reality of, of women in 1918 when she's writing this. And I think it's really interesting. And, you know, the other thing, as I actually kind of get into this essay, I realize that some of this is actually quite autobiographical in its own interesting way. And Kolontai herself, who has had at this point in her life, quite a few romances, and a lot of them haven't worked out. And she's, you know, kind of reflecting on why it is important for women in particular, but especially socialist women and working women to have something in their lives beyond their relationships with men. The other thing, as I was rereading this essay in order to prepare for this episode, I was thinking a lot about Alison Bechtel, the Bechtel test, the Bechtel test, this idea that um, a film you know, has, doesn't pass the test unless there are two women in the film who have a conversation for a certain period of time. And that conversation is not about a man. Uh, and sometimes the women have to actually be named. And and in an interesting way, this essay by Alexandra Kolontai, which was, you know, written 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, kind of predates this idea of, of the Bechdel test, because she's basically kind of laying down what are the requirements for a a heroine in literature that is an independent woman and not just someone who is only worried about her relationships and getting married? And I and I also will say that as I've dug in deeper to this episode, I think a lot about the work of a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, Angelina Eimensberger, who's actually been on this podcast a couple of times. And she's actually writing a really interesting dissertation that I think uses this essay in a really interesting way to look at sort of contemporary romance novels. And so I've been rereading this essay kind of with an eye to thinking about her dissertation and the way that she's using this essay. And it's really made me kind of think about heroines and, and, and the representation of women in not only literature, but obviously film as well and television and why it's so important that Kolontai was talking about this so far, you know, so long ago, so far in the past to 1918. We're in almost at the end of 2021. So we're, we're talking about a century, over a century ago. Kolontai was actually thinking a lot about the ways in which ordinary women are represented and why it's so important for women to have 
their own sort of independent lives outside of their relationships, their romantic relationships. Okay, so this is Colin Ty. For the woman of the past, the infidelity or the loss of her beloved was the worst possible disaster in imagination and in fact. But for the heroine of our day, what is truly disastrous is the loss of her identity, the renunciation of her own ego for the sake of the beloved, for the protection of one's happiness not only rejects the outer fetters, she protests against love's prison itself. She is fearful of the fetters that love, with the stunted psychology peculiar to our time, lays upon lovers. The woman who was habituated to be absolutely consumed in love, even, assumes an anxious stance towards love. She is constantly fearful that the power of feeling might awaken the slumbering atavistic inclination in her to become the shadow of the husband, might tempt her to surrender her identity and to abandon her work, her profession, her life tasks. This is not a struggle for the right to love. This is a protest against moral imprisonment, even that of the outwardly freest feeling. This is the rebellion of the women of our age of transition who have not yet learned how to harmonize inner freedom and independence with the all-consuming passion of love. Whereas the woman of the past, relinquishing love, buried herself in her lightless gray world in order to live in it as a joyless creature, who has liberated herself from love's servitude, stretches to her full height proudly and joyfully. Liberation from the imprisonment of alien thoughts, liberation from the pangs and sorrows, these sharp and mordant offsprings of kisses, to be oneself anew, to find oneself. What a jubilation for a woman who is a personality, and what an incomprehensible, utterly unknown feeling for the woman of the past. A significant transformation had to be affected in the psychic image of woman. Her mental life had to develop itself strongly. She had to gather a rich store of intellectual values so that she would not be bankrupt at the moment she ceased to pay her tribute to the man. But precisely for the reason that woman's life is not exhausted in love, for the reason that a great store of ideas and interests is found in her, which make out of her a human being, we learn to apply a new criterion in the appraisal of women's moral personality. For centuries, the dignity of the heroine was not measured according to her general human characteristics, not according to her intellectual abilities, nor even according to her psychological characteristics, but rather exclusively according to her store of feminine virtues, which the property-based bourgeois morality demanded of her. Sexual purity, sexual virtuousness were the moral physiognomies of the woman. One who had sinned against the sexual moral code was never forgiven. 
and the romance writers carefully protected the heroines beloved by them from falling and allowed only the non-loved to sin as the male heroes sinned without, of course, having to pay with their moral worth as retribution. A forward movement imperceptible even to ourselves has been affected in our psychology in respect to the formation of a new morality. What 50 years ago was considered a permanent blot on a woman or girl's reputation, we now view as a phenomenon requiring neither justification nor forgiveness. But the old moralistic criterion proves unavailing to the degree that woman stands on her own feet that she ceases to be dependent on the father or on the husband, that she stands side by side with the husband and participates in the social struggle. The gradual accumulation of woman's valuable and general human characteristics teaches us to appreciate in her not the representative of sex, but the human being, the personality. And the earlier evaluation of the woman as wife to whom the husband guaranteed a legal maintenance withers away by itself. Life first taught us to apply this standard only to, quote unquote, great souls. Free artists, talents, actresses, women writers were forgiven for their violations of the generally recognized sexual morality. But why should only the great souls set forth this demand, rightly asks Babel. And she's talking here about August Babel, the German author of Woman in Socialism. And this is another quote from Babel. Why not also the others who are not great souls? If Goethe and George Sand, we only cite these two, although many have acted similarly, dared to live according to the promptings of their heart. If Goethe's love experiences fill volumes, which are devoured with worshipful rapture by his readers of both sexes, why condemn others for what in Goethe and George Sand imbue us with enthusiasm and delight? That's the end of the quote from Bebel. And now this is Colin Ty's writing. We are pleased to laugh over the hypocrites who refuse to shake the hand of a Sarah Bernhardt because of her immorality. But when it is a question of not great souls, we ourselves often waver and temporarily do not know how we should comport ourselves towards the free, unmarried woman. But if, in fact, we were to think of applying to these heroines the moral standard of former centuries, then we must turn away from the most beautiful, most human feminine personages that modern literature has created Whereas at the time when women of the old type raised in the adoration of the irreproachable Madonnas made an effort to preserve their purity, to make a secret of their feelings and to hide them, it is one of the characteristic traits of that she does not hide her natural physical drives, which signifies not only an act of self-assertion as a personality, but also as a representative of her sex. The rebellion of women against a one-sided sexual morality is one of the most sharply delineated traits of the new heroine. And of course, I think here, clearly, Kolontai is also talking about herself. Even though she's talking about the representation of women in literature, she's also 
railing here against the sexual double standards because she has had lovers. She has had many relationships. Her colleagues kind of hold it against her because she's a woman, whereas her male colleagues are able to get away with it. So even though she's a Bolshevik moving in circles with other Bolsheviks, they are clearly very critical of her proclivity to forge relationships, usually with much younger men. Okay, now back to Kollontai. This is also natural. In the life of women, the bearers of the future, physiology, in contradiction to the hypocritical views imposed upon them, plays an incomparably greater role than with men. Freedom of feeling, freedom in the choice of the beloved, in the possible father of her child. The struggle against the fetish of the double standard. This is the program that the contemporary heroine tacitly wages in life. A typical trait of the woman of the past was her renunciation of the power of the flesh, the mask of immaculateness, which she wore even in marriage. Woman does not deny her feminine nature. She does not turn aside from life and does not reject earthly joys which reality smilingly grants to each one coveting them. Contemporary heroines become mothers without being married. They leave the husband or the beloved. Their life can be rich in love experiences and, notwithstanding, they will count themselves among fallen creatures as little as will the author or the modern reader. Thus does present herself to us self-discipline instead of emotional rapture, the capacity to value her own freedom and independence rather than impersonal submissiveness, the assertion of her own individuality instead of the naive effort to internalize and reflect the alien image of the beloved, the display of the right to family happiness instead of the hypocritical mask of virginity. Finally, the assignation of love experiences to a subordinate place in life. Before us no longer stands the wifey, the shadow of her husband. Before us stands the personality, the woman as a human being. All right, I'm going to stop there. Uh, there's plenty more of this essay to still read, but I just sort of want to reflect on a few things that Kolontai said, and then I'll post this one and hopefully I'll be able to do another one when I'm in Athens. You know, I want to apologize because obviously I don't have the greatest equipment with me. I have just a phone and a, and a laptop and so I don't have my nice mac microphone. I, I hope that the sound quality isn't as bad as it was the last time I posted an episode. I'm crossing my fingers that this is going to work. But, you know, I think the one thing um, that I really want to reflect on here is this idea that if a woman has work, if a woman has a purpose or a cause or something that she believes in or cares about that is greater than her romantic love. And here I would also add her love for her children, for the family in general. I mean, too often I think women don't really value their lives or value their experiences unless they're somehow devoted to a partner or devoted to a child. And I'm at that age where a lot of my friends and colleagues are getting divorced. And also at that age where a lot of my friends and colleagues, their children are growing up and going off to college. 
And my, you know, my own daughter, her, she started college during the pandemic, which, you know, in some ways was good because it meant that she got to be home. At least it was good for me. I don't think it was good for her, but, but now she's, she's gone. She's, she's away. She's out of my life. I'm no longer a mother. A big part of my identity is, is evacuated by her departure to university. And I can't even begin to imagine what that would have felt like had I not had work to throw myself into the, this podcast, books, travel, you know, lectures for my friends and people that I knew when I went to college or when I worked, you know, in Japan in my twenties or, you know, just other women who chose not to work, but stay home with their kids. I can't even imagine how utterly heartrending it must be when your kids go off to college because I can tell you it was awful. I mean, I felt like somebody had just like socked me, punched me in the solar plexus. I was doubled over with grief when I had to drive home from dropping my daughter off at university. I I had no idea that it was going to be that bad. And at least in my case, I, you know, I, I went home. Yeah, I cried for a little while and I felt miserable. And then I realized that I had a bunch of work that I needed to do. And so I just sort of worked my way through it. I mean, I'm still kind of working my way through it, all truth be told. But, but I don't even know how it would be if I didn't have work or I didn't have, you know, a cause that I believed in. And I think that that's what Kolontai is trying to get at here is that the woman of the past and, you know, obviously uh, still a lot of women today prioritize love, uh, their romantic relationships and their, and their kind of caregiving relationships much more than they prioritize the relationship with themselves and the relationship with their work. I mean, and, and, and here I'm using the work, not in a, not in a, like a formal labor force sort of way. I'm just saying like having a purpose or something that you're doing. I just think that, you know, this is 1918 and it's pretty remarkable that Kolontai was able to, to sort of understand what a huge change this would be in women's lives if they were able to not only focus on marriage and motherhood, but to actually have independent personalities, independent egos, independent purpose, independent work that they could turn to when the emotion, the emotional disappointments or the emotional difficulties of family relationships for one reason or the other, you you're abandoned by your husband, you get a divorce or your husband dies or your kids grow up and go off to college or whatever. It's just a really interesting insight on, on Kolontai's behalf. And, and I think that I'm really enjoying actually rereading this essay because it's not one that I usually spend a lot of time with because I tend to gravitate to her more political writings, but I'm really enjoying this because it's making me really think about the way that women are not only represented in obviously literature and film, but also just the way that we value women in our society as individuals. I think there's still a lot to be learned from Kolontai, even though it's 100 years old and it's from revolutionary Russia. All right, well, I've spoken long enough. Thank you, as always, so much for listening and keep up the good fight. <laughs>